0: I'm Pastor Michael. Um, We are going to conclude our sermon series in Proverbs today. The book of Proverbs is a collection of wise sayings, and it gives us practical guidance on how to live life well, how to live in the light of God's providence. And we've been looking at what Proverbs has to say on relationships, and we've been going through a series of relationships, each relationship more intense than the one before. Last week we looked at the parent-child relationship, and then this week we're going to look at marriage. Now, marriage is, without doubt, the most intense, the most profound, the most life-shaping relationship in your life. And because of the magnitude, right, because of the greatness of it, we better study it. We better understand it. We better look at what the Bible has to say on it because marriage comes from God. Marriage was instituted by God and the Bible is his owner's manual for it. So with that, uh, I'm going to read to you our passage, um, three verses in Proverbs. There's actually... um, Quite a bit more that Proverbs has to say on it, but I, I selected these three because I think it encapsulates what Proverbs has to say. So, first, Proverbs chapter 12, verse 4: First, an excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. 21:9. It is better to live in a in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. an excellent wife who can find, she is far more precious than jewels. This is the word of God. So before I continue, let me very briefly comment on why Proverbs seems to have this male-only perspective. You probably noticed it in the three verses. It talks about having an excellent wife or a quarrelsome wife, but it doesn't talk about an excellent husband or a quarrelsome quarrelsome husband, so what gives? And the answer is you just have to go back to Proverbs chapter 1. And the context is that it's King Solomon giving wise counsel to his son. And, And you have all of these Proverbs, and we saw one of them in the call to worship, all of these Proverbs that says, my son, Listen to your father's instructions. My son, heed your father's words. So that Proverbs is not just sort of uh, abstract teachings and advice given to generic people, but there's a particularity to it. There's a concreteness so that it's a story of a father giving advice to his son. But I want you to know that the wisdom of Proverbs applies to us all, men and women. And I want you to know that these verses equally are addressing both spouses. Okay, so please hear it in that way. So uh, here are my two points. This is my outline. Number one, we're going to look at the power of marriage. And then number two, we're going to look at marriage as a signpost. So first, the power of marriage. Let's look at the first proverb. It's in your bulletin. Um, Proverbs 12.4 An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. So what is this proverb saying? This is what it's saying. Listen. It's saying that your marriage is and will be the most important accomplishment in your life. It'll be the greatest thing you will ever do. This is a very, this is very countercultural in our in our time today. But look at the imagery. It says an excellent wife is the crown of her husband. Now, do you know what a crown is? In the ancient world, a crown was not just a symbol of royalty. A, the, uh, the crown was the greatest achievement of your life. You have to understand that in the ancient world, you didn't just inherit the kingship. You earned it through some great heroic feat, usually victory in battle. So, for example, consider the story of King Saul. You can read the account in 1 Samuel. Very interesting. What happens is, in chapter 10, Saul is anointed king by the prophet Samuel. And then what happens is, it's a very comic scene, right? Because Saul is presented to the people as their king, right? This is somebody they've been waiting for, longing for. But he's nowhere to be found because he's hiding among the luggage. And he's not a very impressive figure. And all the people just sort of go home deflated, defeated. But then what happens is, in chapter 11, there's a crisis, the Israelite city of Jabesh-Gilead is under attack. It's under siege by the Ammonites. And all of Israel is sort of cowering in their homes. But the Spirit of God fills kings, to fill Saul, and he rises up, and he rallies his men, and he leads them into battle, and he smashes the Ammonite forces. He completely destroys them. And then that is when the people finally accept and acclaim him as king. So that this battlefield victory was Saul's crowning achievement. That's where the expression comes from. It won him the crown. And so therefore, do you understand the metaphor? Your crown is your greatest achievement. Now, what does the Bible say is your greatest achievement? What does the Bible say is your crown? It's not your work. Even if you're just killing it at your job. Even if you should be the founder of a billion-dollar tech company that revolutionizes global warming. And all the world acclaims you. And all the world praises you. The Bible says that's not your crown. It's not your beauty. It's not your artistic ability. It's not your social life. It's not even your children. Your crown, what you would want to be eulogized for when they reflect upon your life, what you would want written on your tombstone, your highest honor and highest praise, the Bible says, is your marriage. Now, if that seems like I'm overstating the case, if that seems like an exaggeration, consider this. Let's go back to the beginning of the Bible. What is God's design for marriage? Genesis 2.24. It's an incredibly important verse. We should all have it memorized. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Why does marriage set the course of your life? Why does it have this life-shaping power? It's because marriage is one flesh. You are not one flesh with anything else in your life. You are not one flesh with your job. You switch jobs. Eventually you're going to retire. You are not one flesh with your children. The goal of parenting is eventually your children leave the home and they stand on their own. You are one flesh with your spouse. And what that means is it's two lives merging together. It's two lives being united into one life you understand how profound that is? One of my um, favorite illustrations is, imagine, imagine that there are two tree saplings and they're planted next to each other. And then over the years, the roots grow and they become intertwined and intermingled. And over the years, you know, as the tree grows, you know, the trunks become enmeshed and the branches interpenetrate. And then after many decades, you have these two mighty oak trees, but you don't know where one ends and the other begins. So that it's because of this, this interconnection, interdependence, it looks like, and they function as basically one great tree. You see, marriage gives you this partner for life who will be your ultimate ally, your ultimate confidant. And because of them, you will be able to go out into the world in strength. And the storms will come. The storms will come, but your marriage will be the safe harbor. It will be a place of comfort and renewal. And let me tell you when you have a good marriage, you will be able to face anything in this life, nothing can destroy you you will be invincible. I love the way David Brooks puts it. He says, one of my favorite authors, a good marriage is worth $10 million. I know it's a little bit crass to quantify it like that, but what he means is this. He said, what he means is that if you have a good marriage, it doesn't matter how empty your bank account looks, you are indescribably wealthy. And if you have a bad marriage, all the money in the world cannot compensate for the poverty in your life. Let's look at the second part of the proverb. But she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. So what is shame? Shame is dishonor among your peers. It's public disgrace so that there is a public-facing dimension to your marriage. So that marriage is not just a purely private affair. This is, again, very countercultural in our time. But marriage has these vast public and and social implications and, and applications. Because in the ancient world, you have to understand, if your marriage was in disarray, in significant disrepair, you lost social standing in your community, in your village, in your town, so that you would lose respect and the confidence of others so that your marriage would shame you. And you might say, well, oh, that's that's traditional culture. Aren't we so glad we live now in a modern culture? No. What the Bible says is that Marriage absolutely shapes every aspect of your life, or consider it this way. If you're experiencing deep discord and dysfunction in your marriage, realistically, you can't function in your job. You're not sleeping. You can't focus. You're under emotional distress. Your whole life becomes paralyzed by your marriage. This is why Proverbs says, a bad marriage is like rottenness in the bones. It's a very vivid imagery. It's like this disease, this cancer that's eating you up from inside of you, destroying you from within, sapping your strength, sapping your vitality. Do you understand the imagery here? Do you understand the power of marriage? Or consider the second proverb, Proverbs 21 verse 9. It is better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. So this word quarrelsome here, uh, quarrelsome, uh, is, very, is a very interesting word. It's the Hebrew word "midyan." Now "midyan" does not mean simply to complain, but it's a spirit of complaint. It's making snide comments. It's always finding fault. It's never praising the good, never an encouraging word. It's constantly disputing without kindness or charity. It, Midian is this atmosphere of opposition and disapproval. John Gottman is a, a very famous marriage counselor and um, he has this marriage lab. Uh, his story is featured in Malcolm Gladwell's book, uh, Blink, if, if you remember that. And so he has this marriage lab in which he invites married couples to come and then he asks them to have a discussion about a very difficult subject that they have a significant disagreement about. And then he videotapes them from all these different angles. And according to the book, um, he and his team can predict with 91% accuracy only after five minutes of observing this dynamic this this conflict dynamic whether they will eventually get a divorce they can predict within 5 minutes very high accuracy whether they're going to get a divorce and the reason is because he doesn't look at anything else he just narrows it down to four traits which he says is just poison in the relationship they are criticism contempt defensiveness stonewalling, he calls them the four deadly horsemen of divorce. And he says, by far the worst is contempt. Contempt is when you show the other person disrespect. It's when you look down on them. It's when you judge them. And he says that this kind of disdain, when you do it in a sustained way, it is unbearable. It is dehumanizing and no one can live under that for long. You see, Proverbs says, it is better to live in the corner of a housetop than with a quarrelsome spouse. You have to understand that in the ancient world, houses had flat rooftops and they would have a a ladder that goes up on the side and the the rooftop actually functioned like an additional room. It was almost like a, a second story patio And you can use it to entertain guests, especially in the the cool of the evening. But you can't actually live there because you're exposed to the elements. And so marriage is supposed to be this shelter from the storm. But a marriage that is filled with conflict, that is filled with quarrelsomeness, is like the protective walls of your house have been torn down. So that you have no real home. You have no sanctuary from the storms of this world. And so to live in the corner of a housetop is this picture of absolute exposure and vulnerability. It is a terrible picture. It's a terrible picture. What this shows us is the power of words in marriage. Proverbs 18.21 says, Life and death, are in the power of the tongue. Um, I love what uh, Tim Keller says in his book on marriage, which I think is the most excellent book I've read on marriage. He says, the words that your spouse says to you. He says, your spouse has the power to overturn the world's bad verdicts because no one knows you better than your spouse. If your spouse says You are the kindest person that I know. That is the deepest affirmation you can ever receive. If your spouse says you're a despicable person, the rejection of that cuts so deep. If the world says you are ugly, but your spouse says you are beautiful, you are beautiful, If the world says, you're beautiful, but your spouse says, no, you are ugly, it doesn't matter what anyone else says. Don't you understand? You will feel ugly. That's the power of marriage. Your marriage will either be the greatest strength of your life. It'll be your superpower. Or... It'll be the greatest weakness of your life. It will be your ultimate doom. Let me close this this first point with this final reflection. If God has so designed marriage in this way, and he has, then do you not see how foolish and irrational it is to neglect it? You see, you cannot do marriage on the cheap. A story that has always haunted me is years ago uh, when we were living in Boston, I had a friend who was very active in the church. He was an elder in the church, in fact. And then one day I found out that he was getting a divorce. I was shocked. I had no idea his marriage was so troubled. They seemed fine to me. So we went out for coffee and I asked them, What happened? I will never forget that conversation. She said to me, Michael, one day, it was like just out of the blue, without any warning, my wife said to me, I wanna get a divorce. So I asked her, why? And this was her answer. She said, I am so lonely in the marriage. We don't ever talk. We don't share our lives. We're just roommates. We just live together, but we don't have an actual marriage. And I asked him, is that true? And he said to me, he said, Michael, I've been so busy with school. He was a PhD student. And I know I've been neglecting her. And I just told myself, it's just for a season. This is just temporary. And and when I'm done with my degree, I'm gonna pivot and then I'm gonna focus on my wife and focus on the marriage. And I know it's not ideal, but I just thought it was okay because he said, Michael, please believe me. We never actually fought. They were never we, we never screamed at each other or 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 argued with one another. And so he pleaded with her. He said, Please give me another chance. I didn't know you were so unhappy. But the anger and the bitterness was so deep, it had gone on for so long, she no longer wanted to save the marriage. And so they got a divorce. I have told this story many times over the years. Every time I tell the story, usually it's in a setting with, with other men, the husbands have this look of fear in their eyes because we all recognize elements of this story in our own marriages. You see, there is a natural tendency of the human heart to take our marriage for granted, to stop putting in the hard work of nourishing it and caring for it. And when you do that, your marriage begins to die. And it happens very subtly. Listen... As a pastor, I have this privileged access. I have this intimate look at so many marriages in the church. So please hear me. It happens very subtly. And it begins almost imperceptibly with a kind of distance and disconnection. And it's often made worse by young children because you're so swamped. And all of your conversations become, you know, the logistics of child When did you last feed the child? When was the last diaper change? When do I have to pick up the child from preschool? And when that's all it is, your marriage is dying. The Bible says, because of the greatness of marriage, you cannot neglect your marriage. You must constantly renew it revitalize it, replenish the love of it. And it requires constant work, constant attention. Some of you might be saying, well, how do I know if I am making marriage my priority? Very simple test. Are you guys ready for it? Just ask your spouse. Ask your spouse, do you feel like my marriage, our marriage, is the most important thing in my life? Does it feel like that to you? Does it feel like you are my highest priority above my job, above my hobbies, my friends, above the children? Whatever your spouse says, that's your answer. And for most of us, the answer is painful and sobering, but we need to hear it. So that's the first point, the power of marriage. The second point, marriage as a signpost. Let's go to the third verse, Proverbs 31.10. An excellent wife, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. I want you to know that without the gospel, without the gospel, this verse is absolutely crushing. I know that many of you have been sitting here in this room or sitting at home and you've been listening to the sermon and you have been feeling absolutely discouraged and defeated. I know. I've spoken to so many of you. I know that when you hear Proverbs 31.10 an excellent spouse who can find She's more precious than jewels. And your heart says, yes. But it seems impossible. You know? And you just feel this dark despair. Some of you are married. And your marriage has been broken for a long time. And you have tried for so many years to heal the breach. Breach. God is your witness. You have tried and tried and tried. And you have failed so many times, you have stopped trying because it is hopeless. It is hopeless. And this sermon feels like it's mocking your pain. Some of you are single. And your heart earnestly desires to be married and to start a family. And you hear this description of marriage in the Bible of mutual love, mutual support. And that's what you want. Right? That's what you want to give. Your heart is so ready to give that to your spouse but you have experienced rejection after rejection, and it is so painful, your heart has closed up, and you dare not hope, dare not hope. Some of you have a good marriage. It's not perfect, it has its challenges, but there is harmony and there is affection, and that's good. Some of you are dating or engaged and you're feeling excited and hopeful about the future and about marriage and that is also good. But I want to say to both of you, both groups, you need something beyond your marriage or else you're not going to survive because you're going to put a weight on your spouse that they cannot bear and you will break your marriage. If you read Proverbs thirty-one, Proverbs thirty one is a really famous passage about this ideal wife. And verse ten, which we just read, which is the third verse in our passage, verse ten, right, an excellent wife who can find, she's more precious than jewels, is the opening line of this very famous passage. And when you read it, the description of this ideal wife, it's breathtaking. <laughs> it's astonishing. She is industrious. She is financially savvy, an excellent businesswoman. She provides for her family. She raises her children well. Her children are godly and obedient. She empowers her husband so that he is honored at the city gates. She is is a woman filled with compassion and wisdom and integrity. She She has this inner beauty of character and godliness. And it goes on and on. I remember when I was in college, the, um, the guys in my church, we would read Proverbs 31 to each other and we would use it as a, as a guide to finding a wife. And I remember the sisters in my college fellowship, they would print out Proverbs 31 and they would post it on their desk or on their wall and they would study it and look at it. And that is good as far as it goes, I do want to affirm that Proverbs 31 is a model for being a godly spouse. And we should all aspire to grow into that description. But, if that's all it is to you, it will crush you. And it will crush your spouse. I want you to know that Proverbs 31 is meant to be an impossible ideal. Listen to me. No one matches the glories and excellencies of this Proverbs 31 woman. So then what is Proverbs 31 about? Who is is it talking about? It's really interesting. If you read the whole book of Proverbs, wisdom is personified as this marriageable woman. You see this particularly in uh, Proverbs chapter 9, the opening verse is, wisdom has built her house, she has hewn her seven pillars. So that wisdom, if, if you read Proverbs, wisdom is not just these abstract principles and teachings, but she is a person that you can know. She is this embodied human being that you can have a relationship with and ultimately, you can marry. That's the imagery in Proverbs. Now, is this just poetry? You know? Is it just metaphor? When you turn to the New Testament and you read the opening lines of the Gospel of John, it says... In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word, which is the Greek word logos, it means logic or it means wisdom. The logos became flesh. God's eternal wisdom became a human being. Why? Why did wisdom become a human being? In Ephesians 5, Paul says in verse 32, this mystery is profound and I'm saying it refers to the marriage of Christ in the church. That's the answer. Marriage is a signpost that's pointing beyond itself to an ultimate reality. And the ultimate reality is one day, one day we will be united to Christ as the husband is to his wife. And on that day, we will be so ravished and so satisfied with His love forever and ever, and that's the gospel. And when you believe that, to the degree that it it sinks into your heart, you will see that the best marriages in this life are a wonderful gift from God, but they are but a dim shadow of the ultimate reality awaiting us. And when you believe that, it will give you hope for the worst marriages. The worst marriages. Because the spouse you're longing for is Christ. And when you are filled with His love, you will have the emotional wealth to forgive your spouse. And that's that's the first step. That's the essential step to healing your marriage. You have to forgive your spouse and give them grace. And if you are single, it will give you strength to be faithful. Because the temptation, which is almost overwhelming, is to compromise. It's to take shortcuts. It's to take parts of marriage, like sex, but not the whole of it. I want you to remember that Christ is your ultimate spouse. And on the cross, He showed you His spousal love by dying for you. And He was faithful to you so that you could be faithful to Him. And when you believe that and receive that, you will know that you're not missing out. Please hear me, everyone. You're not missing out on anything because the wedding supper of the Lamb in the the book of Revelations is awaiting all of us if we are in Christ. And the joy of that day, which will be an eternal day, will be infinite and indescribable. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we see in marriage the most intense and profound of all human relationships. And you have designed it that way. It's a picture of the union and the rapture of salvation in Jesus Christ. We pray that whether we are single or married, whether we have good marriages or bad, our hearts will be filled with the spousal love of Christ. And that love will produce in us a deep holiness and joy and faithfulness in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.